when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello, and welcome to the FT's weekly politics podcast with me, Miranda Green. For women in politics, this was an unusual week, a chance to celebrate 100 years of progress, sometimes a little slow, since women were granted the right to vote in UK elections. Both the Prime Minister Theresa May and Opposition Leader Jeremy Corbyn found ways to mark the moment. More of that later, because in one other respect, this week was painfully like those that preceded it, with the government's position on Brexit unresolved and a lot of blows traded on the impact of Britain leaving the EU. Joining me to discuss this are James Blitz, our Brexit newsletter author in London, and Alex Barker from the Brussels Bureau. So, James, the UK cabinet met this week in these intensive sessions, supposedly to thrash out the national negotiating position on what we want from Brexit. It seems as if not much progress was really made. We now understand there's going to be this away day at Chequers for the cabinet to actually resolve the British position. What is going on? It seems that... Theresa May herself even didn't take a position. Well, Theresa May did take one position this week, which is that at the start of the week, number 10 definitely ruled out membership of the customs union or a customs union after a brief period in which, partly through an FT story, we could see that there were people inside government who wanted that adopted. So that's been put to one side. And you're absolutely right. The 10 members of the cabinet subcommittee then met for two sessions of about five hours in all, And what they appear to be discussing is once again this question of what's called managed divergence between the EU and the UK. In other words, the UK will choose um, a certain number of areas in which it will have uh, sectors where it will have regulatory alignment, somewhere it will gradually move away somewhere it will definitely move away. That seems to be the the, the thing that they're talking about, three buckets, so to speak, um, as Mrs May put it in her, her Florence speech. Um, but there's no formal agreement on that. And even if they were to come to a common position on uh, managed divergence, it's not clear that the European Union would accept that as a credible negotiating plan. They would. It's highly likely the EU would just regard that as the UK once again cherry-picking which sectors of the single market it wants to have privileged access to and which not. So all in all, one's come to the end of the week with a sense that the government is still really very vague about it once. Um, it's still thinking about this so-called deep and special relationship that Mrs May wants. But it, it, it needs something much, much clearer. And, and, and so we have to wait to see what's going to come up in 10 days' time. And this is actually discussing where we would go after the so-called transition period, or would this even affect the UK's relations, trading relations with Europe during this supposed two-year two transition? Because actually, listening to some government ministers this week, they themselves seemed a bit unclear on the uh, divergence and 
whether the divergence was going to start after transition. Yes, there was an appalling interview uh, uh, that Greg Hands, the trade minister, had with Andrew Neil on BBC where he was unable to answer those questions. Yeah. It, and it, it looks absolutely terrible. And it, it really gives you a sense of the confusion that there is, even in the parts of government which are heavily involved. We're talking here about the end state, which is the trade relationship that the UK would have with the EU after so the, fi uh, after the, the final destination. The, the final destination. There are three issues to, to sort of just stand back and try and set, just see exactly where we are, which are really on the table at the moment and where the, the UK is really under pressure. The end state that I've just described is one of them. The second is the question over Northern Ireland, which, which relates to that, because uh, one of the central problems you have is that because the UK is now saying it doesn't want to be in the customs union, it adds to the problem that you're going to have tariff checks and rule of origin checks at the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And so that is once again raising the whole question of how the UK is going to do something to guarantee an invisible border. And one of the things, as Alex has been r reporting very well this week, that the EU is now doing is because it's so uncertain about what the British want, it's now trying to get legal text over precisely how this invisible border is going to be maintained. And then the third issue, which has got to be resolved, is the issue of the transition. And there, the UK, the UK basically started out by saying it wanted a standstill transition, but since the start of the year, it's been asking for a certain number of qualifications to that, such as the UK doesn't want to have any new EU laws apply to it. It's made some very specific demands over the status of EU nationals who would come to the UK after March 2019. And all that has created a deep uncertainty over whether even the transition is a given. So we've come to the end of the week, really, with British business and European business, but British business particularly, being really, really uncertain about where things are going. And with more and more people, I think, looking at preparations for a disorderly Brexit, because it still is a very strong possibility. It's, it's a very serious situation to be in, particularly when you consider that we're now a year from Mrs May's Lancaster House speech, since when, although that seemed to lay down quite hard lines on, for example, the customs union and the single market, but in the year uh, in between then and now, there have been these moments of real optimism that some kind of deal could be struck between the UK and the EU, which would soften the impact of Brexit. But really now we're in a fix where it looks worse than ever. Has the rest of the year that we've just gone through really been wishful thinking, do you think, on the part of those who don't want to see a complete severance of relations between the UK and the EU? Well, I think the government would argue, and I think with some justification, that they have at least got the phase one part of the agreement sorted out more or less. In other words, they did in the end come to an agreement over the money. There, of course, the British had to, to back down considerably, having made some very belligerent noises at the start. And they've gone a very long way, it seems to me, to dealing with the question of the status of EU nationals, the, the inherently acquired rights of EU nationals, although this question about the transition is now what happens in the transition has reared its head. But the one thing which the British government has never done is, is until now, is have this discussion about the end state. Now, I think a lot of people on the hard Brexit side of the argument are really quite happy with this vagueness, in fact. I think un under underneath it all, I think a lot of those people would actually like to just have 
a very vague kind of political statement at the end of this Article 50 process saying this is very roughly what we want to go. Um, but then just leave because once we're out, we're out, we're, ir we're, irre we're irrevocably out. And then they want to work out what the long term relationship will be then. And I think they have a very kind of minimalist approach to the kind of relationship we would have. And so they're deferring it to then. I think the question for the soft Brexiters is whether they can really allow us to get to a point where we are leaving, but we haven't defined what that end state will be. And But at the moment, it, it, it although it has seemed at times in the last week or two that the Treasury and people around Hammond are prepared to fight a very strong battle, and Hammond himself, Philip Hammond the Chancellor, made very strong comments about having a very, very small divergence from the EU and Davos, it's not clear whether he's going to get what he wants. So it's going to be extremely difficult for Mrs May to have the two sides reconciled, even if she does try to bang heads together at Chequers. I think it's going to be very difficult indeed. There's no question about that. So, Alex, you've come hot foot from the latest briefing by Michel Barnier, the chief Brussels negotiator on Brexit. He seems, I have to say, relatively unimpressed, I think would be the polite term for it, with the UK's latest position, not least on the customs union. Is the frustration level in Brussels significant now? Well, there's certainly a degree of amusement. They don't really get what's going on in London. Uh, from here, it looks extremely messy. And today, you saw for the first time in this process, uh, or the negotiating process, a press conference with just Michel Barnier there, representing the EU, with no one on the other side from the UK, to wrap up the week and try and show a bit of common ground and, and, and progress. And we shouldn't overstate that. This is an early point in the kind of transition negotiation. It gave a, a sense of the kind of slightly cooler atmosphere between London and Brussels and the considerable efforts that are going to be needed to bring together these different strands before March when there's an EU summit and Theresa May has set her sights there on a deal on transition to give a bit of comfort to business uh, and allow everyone to kind of uh, relax a bit more as they enter the, the meat of the trade negotiation. I mean, we've been talking here um, to James about these talks at cabinet level which have been going on in London to try and resolve the British position and to resolve what it is the British are trying to achieve from the negotiations. I mean... Looking at it from where you are in Brussels, what is the feeling about what Mrs May personally can achieve in terms of reconciling these two wings of her own Conservative Party and indeed the two wings of her own cabinet who seem to want different outcomes from Brexit? Um, one uh, very senior person involved in this uh, negotiation said to me that the, the Prime Minister was courageous uh, um, or at least had to be courageous um, and they want her to make a choice they see this as the moment to do it they really don't want to be drawn into kind of fixing the problem for the UK or laying down the terms in a way that's seen as them taking the initiative particularly in Germany the view is look our ideal relationship is the European Union and uh, if you have an alternative you need to come forward with that and I think there is a debate going on within the 27 now in terms of how they respond to this kind of uh, sense of um, 
uh, immobilization uh, of the politics in, in London? Do they uh, approach the March summit thinking, well, you know, we've had no instructions from London, so we're going to keep this either very vague in terms of how we envisage the future or uh, not adopt what they call guidelines about that negotiation at all or whether they should be more explicit uh, about what the likely costs are if the UK sticks to its kind of you know the 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 most obvious red lines around the customs union and single market Uh, and that debate is going on um, and I think they would really uh, uh, prefer it if there was uh, initiative taken by London uh, over the next few weeks. James, what do you think of, of, of that? Alex says that in Brussels they want Britain to take the initiative and make a choice. How, how likely is that, given what we've seen this week? Well, it's hard to say. Um, clearly, there's going to be this other away day, this away day in the week after next, and there's going to be this discussion about, uh, as I said earlier, managed divergence. Whether they are going to achieve anything, though, that's, uh, that's clear-cut, uh, it is uncertain. I think the problem is, and the reason why they have to try and come up with something before the March Council, is precisely at this point that if they don't, then the uh, pressure will be on the EU to actually define for the British what the end state should be. And frankly, in, 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 with, with a vacuum there, uh, the likelihood is that the EU will start to move towards something to define it in terms of what's called Canada Dry, in other words, a Canada-style trade relationship um, in which um, uh, very little is done on services. And so that is the real problem for the, the cabinet. And that's why they've got to do something. That's why time's running out for them. I think that's right. And also, it, that's then a moment of extreme danger for Mrs. May, isn't it? Because she's all she's been able to do over the last year is really walk this tightrope. And at some point, a choice or a decision one way or the other is going to push her off it. Canada Dry or otherwise. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Keep us updated. And James here in London, thank you for explaining the latest cabinet shenanigans. There will be more of this to come, no doubt. We now turn to the great subject of women in British politics. I'm delighted to be joined by Laura Hughes, our political correspondent. I'm Polita Clark, uh, one of our star columnists. It's 100 years exactly from the suffragettes' victory in gaining the vote for at least some British women. Laura, politics has tried very hard this week to mark the anniversary as a serious moment to track progress and also move on to tackle some of the problems that women still face in British politics. How successfully did you think that Theresa May and indeed Jeremy Corbyn set the tone for this anniversary? Well, it was an interesting one. There was obviously that controversy over whether or not suffragettes should be pardoned. That was an idea first put out there by Ruth Davidson, the Tory Scottish leader, and Jeremy Corbyn later that morning backed those claims. And actually, over the course of the day, I formed my own opinion that was really, by pardoning those women, you're really just pardoning the society at the time because the crimes that they committed, knowingly committed, are still crimes today. So it's slightly different from the Alan Turing case where homosexuality is obviously not a crime and therefore it was appropriate to pardon them. So that was one interesting debate that divided opinion. And then, of course, Theresa May did her speech in Manchester where she chose to talk about social media and the future of local newspapers. There is a small sort of tenuous link, but I don't think she quite got the tone. And I think with, again, with that pardoning question, actually the real fight today and the real 
topic that women should be talking about is equal pay, about getting more women on FTSE 100 boards. Those are the big battlefronts today. And actually talking about gestures that are well-meaning, but actually don't really change what we're facing today wasn't the most constructive moment. I mean, there were some great Labour MPs talking in the Commons, obviously, but I don't think the Prime Minister quite struck the right tone. So, Polita, you actually chose to write about May's decision to mark the anniversary by addressing this question of kind of abuse in cyberspace and, you know, the online intimidation, which does seem to affect uh, female politicians quite badly. I think you felt it wasn't sort of firm enough or that she was straying onto this territory without really coming to blows with the online baddies. Yeah, I mean, I actually felt that it was quite a reasonable topic to choose and it's one that she herself, of course, has turned to repeatedly over the years and um, she's made it clear that she'd like to see social media platforms step up and do a lot more to try to control this problem. The problem I had with it was that she went to great lengths to talk about the recommendations, essentially, of a report that she herself commissioned last year into this. And when it came to the meatiest one, which is basically a recommendation to look at introducing a new law which would shift the liability for for the problem more towards the companies so that they don't get treated just as hosts, they actually get treated a little bit more like publishers. When it came to that, she basically said, well, actually, you know, this is really complicated and we'll just look at this. And then she, true to form, decided that there should be a review and more consultation. And essentially, I just thought, you know, really, this is, it's just not good enough. If you're going to talk about it, at least try and do something about it. It is a problem for May, isn't it, Laura? She does seem to be mistress of government by review. And if you're going to raise such a contentious topic, which is straying onto all sorts of sensitive territory about free speech online, and also there are those who will argue that public life is tough and if you step up to serve, you should be prepared to take a little bit of abuse in the interests of a free and open democracy. Actually, didn't she end up with the worst of both worlds in that she didn't actually come down with any concrete proposals, but she irritated both the free speech lobby and those who want to see women in public life better protected? Yeah, she wasn't able to announce what I think maybe she wanted to. And of course, she talked about reviewing again, making it a criminal offence if members of the public are seen to have abused political parliamentary candidates, which again is something that we are facing. And I think one of the questions is that actually it's, untested waters here we are facing a whole different way of the public communicating with their politicians and nobody really knows how to deal with it because it's the first time it's ever happened and she of course has suffered a lot and I mean the abuse that some of the women MPs that I talk to get is a lot and I wrote an article once and I started getting you know these awful questions whether or not this man thought that I was worth raping and these just astounding bits of abuse that women do have to face every day and how do you tackle that I don't know I think it's also a party political issue it's not a government issue so actually various parties need to be clamping down and saying who are making these comments and if you are a member of our party you will get kicked out and I think they've been relatively tough on that but how you police that I don't know and again how do you police what your own MPs have said in the past on social media that's another issue that we've seen coming out in the last few weeks you know new candidates that weren't properly vetted making inappropriate remarks on bizarre social media platforms 10 years ago it's it is a really difficult one and 
you know, the big, the Facebooks and the Googles are very powerful and YouTube is very powerful and it's not as mm. easy as turning, you know, turn off the switch, cancel that comment. It's, it is very complex. It is uncharted territory, isn't it? I mean, I, I felt slightly that she would have been on safer ground had she stuck to her own really quite good record on encouraging women into participating yeah. in politics, you know, because, of course, she uh, and Baroness Jenkin have a good record on that in their own party. They can boast about having two female prime ministers, which always embarrasses the Labour Party. <laughs> Party and Estelle, she got essentially got sort of admired in, in in all of this. But Polita, you pointed out in your column that actually, although it is uncharted territory, Germany is experimenting with something which we could watch and learn from in terms of online abuse. Yeah, in fact, some people who take a close interest in this area thought that she might actually go this far. So Germany, as of this year, has a new law that basically says that platforms like Facebook and Twitter have to remove potentially illegal content within 24 hours of being notified or face fines of up to 50 million euros. It's really contentious. The government's copped a lot of flack from um, all sides of the political spectrum there for reasons that I'm sure will be familiar to a lot of listeners. People say it just gives too much power to the social networks to decide what's illegal and what isn't, and courts should do that. And then more pressingly, and you know, I have some sympathy, obviously, with this argument, it basically could have a chilling effect and even mildly contentious content could perhaps be taken down. But I, I still think that at the moment we just seem paralysed that politicians, the public, policymakers just seem unable to grapple with the idea that we might regulate these increasingly enormous and powerful platforms. And I'm actually, even though I can see that the, the German law may have problems, but I like the fact that it's out there, it's experimenting. And I think Mrs May, if she really were keen to grapple with this, she might have just looked at modifying it. For example, some people say, you know, you could audit what's being taken down, have a look at how it's working. You know, she might have, that would have seemed to me to be at least an attempt to try to to actually do something rather than just say, well, you know, vaguely, you know, we'll ask the Law Commission to look into this. You know, so I, 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 I know it's problematic, but I think the alternative, just sitting back and waiting for something to happen, means nothing will happen. Or just don't mention it at all. If you're not going to say something, why bring it up in the first place? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. So we could actually start some sort of experimental process, you're saying, Polita. Another process that was started this week, Laura, was this long-awaited report on the MPs in Parliament peers as well as employers. This comes on the back of all of the allegations of sexual misconduct in Parliament. Uh, Andrea Leadsom, the female leader of the House, published this report with quite concrete proposals this time on how members of staff, those working in the Palace of Westminster, could have redress against MPs and peers who behave badly towards them. It has been slightly contentious, though, this idea that MPs should remain anonymous when there are complaints against them. Do you think this package of proposals goes far enough to make Westminster a modern workplace where people can feel safe in getting involved in politics? Because, of course, being an employee of an MP is often the first step on a career in, in politics. Yeah, exactly. And this is why I started investigating this a few months ago and looking into how young people, often young people, are being treated by their MP employers. There was absolutely no HR system. MPs' offices are run like small businesses and no one had anywhere to go if they had a point to raise. I think the proposals that have been put out are a really good step forward. It was quite an achievement to get everybody around the table to sign up to them. And I know that Labour were very slow 
and had some issues with it being independent. And draft reports were leaked before and actually what we got on the end was a lot stronger than it was at the beginning. The word independent wasn't there. And actually the sanctions that are imposed, so giving Catherine Hudson, the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner, the power to recall MPs, which will ultimately leave them, you know, see them leaving their seats it's really I mean, that is the it's ultimate very it's sanction. very yeah some would that's, say quite draconian that's really strong but then there is of course this issue of anonymity and i spoke to andrew ledson today and obviously raised the point because some victims argue that actually when you do put an mp's name out there other people come forward we saw that with the kelvin hopkins case carrie mccarthy another labor mp said came out you know weeks after saying right i'm not going to let ava take the hit this happened to me too and that strengthened her case because actually when you have more people coming forward you can prove a pattern of behavior but equally the moment you do name an mp it's not too difficult for journalists to work out who the complaint might have come from because all you have to do is go tiny members of staff that number of staff and yes. you can work it out and and one of the concerns that victims were raising to this cross-party group of um, mps and, and other various bodies was they didn't want to complain because if the MP's name gets out there, they could be found. So there are two sides to this and it's not perfect. And there is still an issue. There is no provision for whistleblowers in this new code of conduct. And I think that's important because what happens if you witnessed something? And I've spoken to people who tried to complain to the Labour Party about some things that they saw happening in their office. And the Labour Party said, I'm sorry, but the complaint needs to come from the woman herself. Where is the duty of care there? No action has been taken. So there are still things that need to be ironed out, but they're hoping it will roll out within a few months. MPs and peers will obviously vote for it, I hope. Um, <laughs> They'll feel obliged they to, will they not? It will, it will be rolled out. And then after six months, they're going to go back and look at that third party reporting issue. They're going to look more at constituency offices. They're going to look at this private life idea because the first woman I ever interviewed who was sexually assaulted and pushed down on a bed by an MP she went to tell Catherine Hudson told Parliament what had happened but it was considered to be a matter of his private and personal life and there was nothing that Parliament could do the incident happened abroad so there was nothing that the police could do and there is still that issue of if something happens when an MP is abroad what happens if it's a young activist and not actually a direct member of parliamentary staff? There are still, it's very complex. There are still issues to be ironed out, but I think Andrew Ledson is aware of them. And I, I do think this week is a really good step forward. Thank you, Laura and Polita. And thanks also to my other guests, Alex Barker and James Blitz. My thanks to all of you and to our producer, Martin Staub. That's it for this week's FT Politics podcast. I've been Miranda Green, and next week, Sebastian Payne, your regular host, will be back from his travels and back in this chair. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.